What it all boils down to, did Jesus Christ really rise from the dead? Because if he did, there's hope right now. There's hope for the future. There's life. There's peace. There's joy. There's forgiveness. Death is a defeated foe. That really is what it all boils down to. Do you believe that? So again, let me welcome you. Let me apologize to you. We uh, had some audio difficulties apparently at the very uh, beginning. And so let me welcome you again. Uh, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 2. We're talking about overcoming the fear of death. Uh, the notes are in, in, in with scripture references are in uh, the app if you have the True Life uh, Church app. If you want to contact us, you can text TLC, uh, text 94,000 TLC guest, all lowercase, or if you make some kind of spiritual decision or have a question or just uh, want some help in taking your next step on your spiritual journey, uh, you can text 94,000 TLC decision. Uh, you can give online through the app, through the website, uh, but... Uh, I hope you'll really think about uh, what we're talking about uh, today. I mean, we've talked about overcoming the fear of circumstances. We've talked about overcoming the fear of suffering. But then today, we want to talk about overcoming the fear of death. And death is a reality that we have to deal with. Rick Warren has said, and I think he's right, that the only time most people think about eternity is at, is at funerals. And then it's often shallow, sentimental thinking based on ignorance. You may feel it's morbid to think about death, but actually it's unhealthy to live in denial of death and not consider what is inevitable. Only a fool would go through life unprepared for what we all know will eventually happen. You need to think more about eternity, not less. And I think that's true. I hope the uh, day in which we live in which we're inundated with stories of sickness and, and suffering and, and death, as bad as that is, I hope that one positive out of it is it makes us be more aware of our own mortality and our own need to be prepared for what is this inevitable reality of death. You know, you've probably heard preachers say, you may have heard me say, well, if you died today, are you ready to meet God? If you died today and had to stand before God, what would you say to him? If he asked you why he should let you into heaven, what would your answer be? And you may hear something like that. You may think, well, that's corny, that's cheesy. Or you may think, yeah, maybe there's something to that, but you know, not today, uh, later on. Um, you know, I'll deal with that then. But we really don't know if we have later on. I mean, I could talk about that in relation to COVID, but it's not just COVID. Um, the, there's a family that we bought our house from in, in Maryland. The man's name was John. Uh, they were part of our church. He was on uh, the pastor search committee that was a part of, of bringing me there. And uh, they were a real blessing in our lives, uh, good friends. And, uh, but Another man in our church who was in our church in Maryland, he lives in North Carolina now, his, his name is Bill. And uh, John was down visiting with Bill and they were doing like a missions project to help a lady out and they were doing some work at the house and it's kind of on a curvy, windy, mountainous back road in rural North Carolina. And uh, to do this work, there's a backhoe involved and they had traffic stopped and uh, I, I don't know all the exact specifics when traffic was stopped, there was a car that you know came up on it, did, 
didn't really, I guess, react in time and uh, ended up skidding off the road and actually hit John, and he died within minutes. I mean, just completely out of the blue. We really don't know. And so I think the question is, are we prepared for death? Or even beyond that, I mean, do you have a fear of death? I read some research that came from last year in 2019, uh, some research, some polling in America. And according to this poll, 11% of Americans say or said then that they're very afraid of death. 31% said somewhat afraid of death. 27% said not very afraid. 25% said not afraid at all. And 7% said they didn't know. So out of that, 42% said they had, uh, were either very afraid or somewhat afraid of death. 27% said not very afraid, but that would imply some level of fear. And so uh, that uh, gets you up to close to, to 70%. But I wonder if that question were asked now in the middle of COVID, if the numbers would have gone up. I also wonder if that question were not asking a vacuum, because let's be honest, when you're in, in your 20s, you kind of feel indestructible. Maybe your 30s. 40s, you start to have some questions about it, but you think, well, it's going to be somebody else. It's not going to be me. But I wonder if someone who was told by a doctor that they had a month to live, was that, was, if, if you polled a group of people who were in that situation, I wonder what the numbers would be. Are we ready to face death? Are we, a, a, are we afraid of death? Are we ready to die? Are we ready to meet God? What would we say if we had to stand before the Lord today and he said, why should I let you into my heaven? In 2015, the New York Times did an article about uh, famous television interviewer Larry King, if you remember him from all those years on CNN. And uh, the article said that he was, is, is, he's still alive. I think he's like 87, some 88, something like that now. But uh, like I said, this was 2015. The article said that he's just obsessed with death. His day begins with reading obituaries, and he ponders who will give the eulogy at his funeral. He smiles as he thinks it might be Bill Clinton, and then his face becomes blank, but I won't be there to see it. He's had, quote, a heart attack, quintuple bypass, prostate cancer, diabetes, and seven divorces. He was 77 years old when the television news station CNN dropped him, and when this happened, he really became aware that there will come a day when he dies. When he learned from TV of the death of Osama bin Laden, this drove him to jump up on his feet. He said, I needed to be on the air. I needed a red light to go on, but then realized that he had, quote, nowhere to go. <clears throat> to move against aging and death, he takes hormone pills for human growth, four of them each day. He plans on his body to be frozen so that someday he will live again. And so the New York Times reporter wrote, it's nuts, concedes King, but at least it gives him a shred of hope. Larry King says, other people have no hope. So his hope for facing death is to be frozen and someday come back to life again. But people think Christians are nuts for believing in a, quote, magic fairy tale of Jesus rising from the dead. Incidentally, King said one time, 
he was asked about if, if there was one question that he could have an answer to, you know, because he was maybe the most famous interviewer who's, who's ever lived and asked all these famous people uh, thousands and thousands of questions. He says, if there's one question that you could have an answer to, what would it be? And he said, it would be the question of, did G, was Jesus Christ really born of a virgin? Because the answer to that question would then answer every other question. And so today, uh, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that tells us, teaches us about the birth of Jesus, teaches us about why Jesus came into the world, and, and it shows some benefits of that to us, one of which uh, is how that we can be delivered from the fear of death. And, and so basic biblical Christianity is this. There is a God. He's our creator. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is very, truly, eternally God, took on flesh. He became a man, born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a perfect and a sinless life. And he went to the cross then as, as the sacrificial substitute for us, dying for our sins, dying the death that we deserve, paying the penalty, absorbing the, the, the punishment, the wrath of God for our sins. This is why he became a man, he, he, so that he could be our substitute, so he could die in our place, because the Bible says the wages of sin is death, and we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've broken God's law, but Jesus came perfectly fulfilled that law and then died as our place in our substitute and then rose from the dead to give us new life, to give us eternal life. This is the claim of Christianity, that Jesus did this for us, that salvation then is only in him, that he's the only way to God. And if we turn from our sins and by faith commit our lives to him, that's how we're forgiven. That's how we're made right with God. Do you believe that? And have you acted on that to Repent and trust Jesus to give your life to him. This is the only way that you can have hope and peace and assurance in facing death. Look at what scripture says. Hebrews 2, starting in verse 5. It says, for he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. And, and chapter one had been, uh, uh, he's talking about angels and the superiority of Jesus uh, to the angels. And that's the context. But he says, one testified in a certain place saying, and he's speaking of the eighth Psalm, what is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things yet put under him, but this is what we do see. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. In other words, he was, in the context of what he's saying here, he was made a human being. The Bible says in Colossians 2.9, literally translated, for in Jesus Christ, all, everything that is God is permanently housed in bodily form. He was made a little lower than the angels. He was made one of us. He became a, a, a man. He became fully human in addition to being fully God. Why? He says, for the suffering of death 
crowned with glory and honor. See, Jesus humbled himself. He humiliated himself as God coming into the world as a baby, as being crucified as a common criminal. But the Bible tells us now that God has exalted him to the place of highest honor at his right hand, seated, enthroned, ruling, reigning as king of kings and Lord of lords. But he did this that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Think about that. Jesus Christ tasted death for you. It says, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory. In other words, in making us his children who will someday partake of his heavenly glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, uh, I'm really gonna focus on verses 14 and 15, but let me just say something about this. It's not saying there was ever any imperfection in Jesus Christ, but that his perfection was completed. His perfection was demonstrated. His perfection was proven by his perfect obedience, even going through suffering. But think about this. We don't like to suffer, but if Jesus Christ, the God-man, suffered, how could we ever think that we're too good, that we're above or beyond suffering, how could we ever think that the point of Christianity is just to deliver us from all of our earthly suffering like the prosperity gospel says when our God suffered so that we could actually become his sons and daughters and experience his glory? Because any theology that doesn't fit or line up with Jesus has to have some major problems, right? So he was perfected by his suffering. God is using suffering to complete, to refine, to perfect us. It says, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified all are of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He's speaking to us. He's saying, you're my family. You're my family. Saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And this is what we're gonna focus on. And what he's saying is, in him becoming flesh and blood, in him dying for our sins, he defeated Satan to deliver us from that stronghold of death and from the bondage of the fear of death. Since for indeed, he does not give aid to angels. Listen, some of you all think that when you, uh, you know, when people go to heaven, they become angels. That is not what the Bible teaches. That's diminishing what God has done for us. Angels are spirit beings. We're made in the image of God. Jesus didn't die for angels, he died for us and we are redeemed and become children of God. And it's why uh, the Bible in, in 1 Peter talks about, it says these are things the angels desire to look into. They can't even know this experientially in, in, in the way that we can. So you're better off being a redeemed, glorified human being in heaven than you would ever be being an angel. So that's not what happens when, when people die. It says, for indeed he's not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. In other words, he had to become one of us. 
Jesus fully human in every way, short of a sin nature and sin, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. We can go to him at any time in things pertaining to God to make propitiation, to make an atoning sacrifice, is what that means, for the sins of his people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So let me summarize this uh, for us in, in, in three statements to hopefully help us to get these truths, but then to challenge us, not just to, to think about this intellectually, because we're going to go back at the end to the first four verses of this chapter, which are a warning and a challenge not to hear this without heeding it, not to know about this intellectually without acting on it spiritually, not to have head knowledge of Jesus, but end up in hell because we've never responded to the gospel in repentance and faith. So number one, we see here that Jesus is God who became a man in order to die for our sins. Once again, notice verse five. It says, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, which in the context means that he became a human being for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Once again, verse 17, he did this to make a propitiation, to make an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. Uh, propitiation speaks of appeasement. It, it speaks of the fact that God is righteously angry against sin. He has to be in order to be a just God. And if God's not just, he's not God. I mean, I mean, think about it. One, one of the, the biggest themes of 2020 is people looking for justice. We want things to be right. We want things to be fair. We don't want people uh, to be mistreated. Uh, we, want, uh, we, we want wrongs to be dealt with, people to be accountable. We want things to be made right. Why? Because we're made in the image of God who is a just God, and because we have a soul, just this uh, desire for justice, this immaterial kind of thing, speaks to the reality of God, because if, uh, if we're simply uh, products of uh, you know, evolution, there's no reason for us to be wired this way. It's not logical. So if we long for justice, it's because that has been imparted to us because we're made in the image of a just God. But for God to be just, he must punish all sin. Romans 1.18 says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. For God to be just, it can't be selective. It can't be for certain people. It can't be against certain sins. It has to be against all sin. You sinned, I've sinned, we've disobeyed God, we've rebelled, we've gone our own way. And, and so John 3.36 says that means that the wrath of God abides upon us unless we're trusting Jesus Christ. Why? Because on the cross, that wrath was poured out on him. It was diverted from us to him. So if we trust him who came and became one of us and died for us, it's removed then from us. Jesus is God who became a man in order to die in our place. This is the basic 
the basics of Christianity, Christianity 101. This is the gospel, that it's not what we do, that there is nothing we can do to contribute to our salvation. And if we're trying to earn our own salvation, that we're missing him because faith plus works is just works. The Bible says in Romans chapter four that when we're trying to earn our own salvation, I'm paraphrasing, that it's not giving us grace, it's adding to our sin debt. It has to be Jesus alone. But so many people uh, miss this. A young man in our church posted this online uh, last week. It's an article by Joe Carter from the, the Gospel Coalition uh, summarizing some research that's been done. He says, a survey conducted by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University find that American adults today increasingly adopt a salvation-can-be-earned perspective. 48% believe that if a person is generally good, or does enough good things during their life, they will, quote, earn a place in heaven, and only 35% actually disagree with that. Now, that's what religion says. If you're good enough, the question will always be, how good is good enough? And we usually try to define that ourselves, but God defines it as perfection. He says, We've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. He's saying none of us meet his standard or if we do enough good deeds. But yet the Bible says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. In other words, if we can earn or contribute to our salvation, we can brag about it when the actual purpose of salvation is the glory of God. Do you wanna be in heaven where everybody's sitting around uh, bragging about how great they are or what they did uh, to earn, to deserve getting there? That's the opposite of Christianity. This is what's crazy. This uh, study shows that a majority of Americans, 52%, who just actually describe themselves as Christians, also accept a works-oriented means to God's acceptance, meaning that at a starting place, half the people in the United States who claim to be Christians really aren't. Are you in that half? Now, I'm not saying that everyone who has their theology right is actually saved because there's more to it than that. I'm just saying if you believe that you can contribute to your salvation and earn acceptance from God, by definition, biblically from the start, you are lost and separated from God. What's even crazier is the denominations whose official doctrine is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, that almost half of all adults associated with some of these denominations believe that they can earn their salvation. Pentecostal, 46%. Mainline Protestant, 44%. Evangelical, 41%. 70% of Catholics, which actually makes sense because that is Catholic doctrine, that it's faith plus works. But those are some pretty high numbers. The study says about 65% of Americans describe themselves as Christians, but only 54% believe they've experienced heaven after they die. Only 33% believe they will go to heaven solely because of confessing uh, their sins and embracing Jesus as their Savior. About 20% believe or expecting to experience heaven because they're either earning their way in or because they're a universalist who says that God will let everybody into heaven. 
So among those with other views, 15% say they don't know what will happen after they die. 13% said there is no life after death. 8% expect to be reincarnated. 8% believe they will go to a place of purification like purgatory prior to entering heaven. And 2% said they believe that they will go to hell. Now, there's only so many options. What do you believe is going to happen to you when you die, why do you believe it? And if you believe the Bible, and there's heaven and there's hell, which one are you headed to and why do you think that? And understand, you can think you're going to heaven, but the only way you're actually going to heaven is on God's terms, not yours. And God's terms are repenting of our sins, trusting in Jesus Christ alone, confessing him as the Lord of our life. Where do you stand? But no, biblical Christianity is Jesus is God who came to earth as a man, lived a perfect sinless life, died in our place for our sins, rose from the dead, and that salvation is only fully, completely, totally, 100% in him. Nothing we can do. It's by the grace of God. All we can do is trust him, and even our faith is a gift of God. It's all him for his glory. But number two, we see here in verses 14 and 15 that when we do trust Jesus and are forgiven of our sins, we are set free from the bondage of the fear of death. Now, if you're honest and you search your hearts right now in this moment, do you have a fear of death? Now, I'm, talking, I'm not talking about saying, uh, you know, you want to get sick or you want to die or anything like that, but do you feel a confidence, a peace in your soul that you're forgiven of your sins and you're ready to meet a holy God? Look at verse 14 and 15 again. It says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So there's two accomplishments here that Jesus in his incarnation, in his crucifixion, and his resurrection, two things specifically that are mentioned in verses 14 and 15 that he accomplished, that is he rendered Satan ineffectual, and then he delivers us from the bondage, from the slavery of the fear of death. Now, you may be thinking, well, in what sense does Satan have power over death? I thought God is the one who had the power of life and death. I thought, you know, we looked at in the spiritual warfare uh, series this fall that, uh, you know, God is sovereign over Satan. And that's absolutely true. Uh, I don't believe Satan can kill you, uh, you know, outside of the permission of God. Your life, your times, your days are ordered and numbered by a sovereign God. But Satan has the power of death in the sense of in, in his sphere, in his dominion, in his kingdom. It's a sphere of death. Uh, Satan came to steal, to kill, and to destroy. His, his desire is to ruin your life. His desire is to take you to hell. So in, in, in that sense, he is working to actively destroy you, to actively uh, ruin you spiritually, to ruin your life, uh, to, to kill you, to kill everything that's good in your life. And, but it says here that, that Jesus, uh, he, he uh, destroyed him, doesn't 
doesn't mean that he eliminated him. It just means that he took away his power to do this. Satan only has this kind of power in our lives now when we let him have it because Satan is a defeated foe. In his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus defeated sin and death, sin and death and hell and the grave and Satan. Uh, Colossians 2 talks about him, uh, a, a victory parade in, in, in the spiritual realm. Jesus has this power. But there's also a power that it talks about here that the fear of death exerts over us. It calls it a bondage. Kind of like an, an addiction, a slavery, something that can take over and, and control our lives. But when we have the peace of being forgiven and, and the peace and the assurance of heaven, that bondage is broken and, and we can live in freedom then because I, I've, I've, I see this as a pastor. If we're not really ready to die, we're not ready to live. So say, well, what does death even mean biblically? Well, in, in a biblical sense, death is separation. The Bible tells us there's spiritual death and that our sins separate us from God. Physical death is the separation of the body and the soul. Eternal death is permanent separation from God in a place called hell. And so apart from Jesus Christ, we're spiritually dead because we're separated from God. But the Bible tells us that on the cross, Jesus accomplished reconciliation. You see, God created us. He made us in his image. So we were like this, but sin broke that. Sin separated us. But now Jesus reconciles us. He brings us back to God. And when we're in relationship with God, we're spiritually alive, which guarantees that we'll be eternally alive. Even beyond that, the Bible teaches us that when Jesus rose from the dead, that his his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. And he said, because I live, you will live also. That's why, because he lives, we have hope. We can face tomorrow. Life is worth the living because Jesus rose from the dead. According to scripture, according to Jesus himself, when it comes to death and the afterlife, that it is a real place. That we're spiritual, immortal beings. We're gonna exist somewhere forever. And the two options are heaven and hell. There's no intermediate ground. There's no second chances. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, 27, that it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And so heaven is a place of glory, beauty, perfection, sinlessness. It's in the presence of God where God is being worshiped forever. It's a great reunion where we enjoy God and serve him forever. The Bible tells us, though, Jesus said that hell is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of outer darkness where the fire is not quenched. It's a place of suffering. It's a place of conscious torment. It's a place of intentional and eternal punishment. It's ultimately a place of separation from God and everything that is good. And you can't pick and choose what you believe in the Bible, and Scripture clearly teaches it. But you say, Jimmy, we're, you know, we're in the 21st century, you know, haven't we evolved past these primitive myths and these kind of cultural stories and this kind of thing? Do you really believe this? And, and, and I do. And you say, why? Well, just three basic reasons when it comes to heaven and hell. My philosophy of life is simply this. It's my philosophy when it comes to anything. I believe after 
hundreds of hours of studying it because I was skeptical about it at a point of time in my life. I believe that it's a historical fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And if it's a historical fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that proves his claim to be the Son of God. And if he rose from the dead, which demonstrates that he is the Son of God, that means that he's trustworthy in everything that he said. So I'm going to go with the guy who rose from the dead. Jesus clearly taught there is a heaven and and there is a hell. And so I believe it because I believe in the resurrection of Christ. And that flows out of believing in the resurrection. I believe in heaven because I think C.S. Lewis was right when he said, if nothing on this earth satisfies us, and I think we can relate to what he said, what that means is we were made for a different world. We're ultimately made for the presence of God. We're not made for this sinful, decaying world and these sinful, decaying bodies. This isn't what it's supposed to be. This isn't normal, but through Jesus Christ, there's a new day coming. There's a better day coming, and I think our desire indicates that. I I mean, why have almost the overwhelming majority, almost entirely down through the centuries, you know, the population of the world believed and looked for some kind of heaven and afterlife? Why? I believe it's because God's put eternity in our hearts is what Scripture says. Why would I believe in a place called hell? It relates to what I was talking about earlier because I believe in the concept of justice. You say, how is that just? Well, sin against a holy, eternal God demands an infinite, eternal punishment. Sin is that bad. God is that holy. The cross was that important. Why would God have sent his only beloved son to the cross if there was some other way for our salvation? Why would God send his only beloved son to the cross if hell wasn't a real place? We need forgiveness, and Jesus is the only way. But listen, when we're forgiven, we can face death with hope and peace and confidence and, and assurance. You know, I saw this recently in our church family. You know, Rob Toby uh, passed away a few weeks ago. But in, in being with him after he learned this and learned that he was dying and just had a little bit of time to live and spending some time with him, this was a man at peace. This was a man who told his doctors when they told him that my life's in Jesus' hands. Uh, If he wants to heal me, he can heal me. And if not, I'm ready to meet him. That's what this text is talking about. This was someone who was released from the bondage of the fear of death and can face death with hope and peace. That's what Jesus does for us. That's what the cross does for us. That's what grace does for us. And so, All this then adds up to if Jesus is the only way and if he came and made a way and if he defeated death and hell and the devil and he's able to release us from this fear, that means that it is urgently necessary for us to respond to this message and to be ready to face death. If we go back to conclude, back to the beginning of the chapter, and I want us to read verses one through four. And this is one of several warning passages in the book of Hebrews. 
And these warning passages are directed to people who had some knowledge of the gospel, some knowledge of the truth, but had never personally responded to it, had never personally responded to Jesus. And I have no doubt, I don't know who's listening, I don't know how many people are out there, but I have no doubt that that is exactly where some of you are spiritually right now. You may think you're a good person. You may think you're a religious person. You may think you've done a good, enough good deeds, or you may have heard the Christmas story. You may have heard about Jesus, and you may acknowledge it in your head. But you've never done what the Bible says in Romans 10, 9, and believed in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You never repented and believed the gospel. That's the words of Jesus. In other words, you've never turned from your sin and your self-will and your own life, turning to God through Jesus Christ and faith in him to commit yourself to him. Because in true biblical faith, that's part of what the word means. There's, just, there's an element there of, of commitment to, of, of reliance on. It's like you're resting all of your spiritual weight on him, relying in him and him alone. That's what makes you right with God. That's what prepares you to face death. And so verses one through four say this. We, we just listen to God's word and, and let him speak to you. He says, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience receive a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Did you hear the question? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How will you escape? How will you escape the judgment of God, the wrath of God? How will you escape eternal separation from God if, if you neglect so great a salvation? Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is salvation. It's not what we do. It's what he has done for us. It's the fact that, once again, he is God. He came to earth, born of the Virgin Mary, lived as a man, lived a perfect, sinless life, uh, died on the cross for our sins, and what that means is that through the cross, when we trust him, our sin, our disobedience, our breaking of God's law was transferred to Jesus and his perfect obedience, his righteousness is then transferred to us where God can see us as pure and holy in his sight. And Jesus rose from the dead, giving us new life, giving us eternal life, guaranteeing our resurrection. He did this for us. But the Bible says we have to receive him. We have to believe on his name. Have you received him? Are you trusting in him and him alone for your salvation? I, I want to ask if you would, just if you can, just wherever you are, let's just bow our heads and close our eyes for just a minute.